Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Brainwaves. Hear the world differently. Bringing community mental health to you, raising awareness and challenging stigma. Tune in to 3CR Community Radio, Wednesdays at 5pm. Melbourne's Drive Time Radio Program, featuring community organisations, powerful stories and information. Find us at brainwaves.org.au. Proudly sponsored by Wellways Australia. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Brainwaves on 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital and online at 3cr.org.au. This is Kirsty and I'll be your host this evening. I am joined in the studio today by Jess Revens, a mental health advocate, psychology and sports science graduate and honours researcher. Jess also has lived experience of mental illness. Thank you for coming in today, Jess. I thought we could begin by you briefly telling us about your own experience with mental illness. Yep, so it kind of began from a young age. I would say that I had many predispositions to developing predisposition, sorry, to developing a mental illness. So I was quite an anxious kid. And I also had extreme perfectionist tendencies. I was the kind of kid who, if you sat on my bed, would immediately fix it. (laughs) So I kind of had some things there that were a bit of kind of a red flag that something might develop as I got older. Okay. And then I experienced some quite significant traumas in terms of some abuse, some severe bullying and also drugs and alcohol from my family home. And as a young person, I didn't really have many coping resources. I didn't really know how to deal with that. So I kind of, at the time, got it into my head that if I was to lose enough weight and to become really skinny, then my problems would all disappear. Mm -hmm. And that's not the case. (laughs) That's not really how it works. There's no magic quick fix to life problems. So I had an eating disorder from the age of about 11 to 18. Okay. And then I started getting treatment for that and they sort of noticed some other things about me that I sort of went through different periods of mood disturbances Mm. and I was diagnosed with depression originally. Yeah. And this happens with many people with bipolar disorder. We're often misdiagnosed as depression first because... Oh, really? Yeah, because we have this bad habit of only talking to therapists when we're sad. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So we're kind of like, oh, I'm really depressed right now. And then if a therapist sees you for the first time when you're like that, they'll diagnose you with depression. But you might have, for example, in my experience... Uh, the sort of heightened side of my pers- my moods, I thought was my personality. So I thought mm. I'm this big, you know, inventive, creative, extroverted, extroverted yeah, angry, bubbly. bubbly person with a bad temper who gets a bit irritable, yeah. uh, who gets depressed sometimes. That's what I thought yeah. I was. And so that's what I would tell the doctor. But, uh, you know, it turns out that was more a reflection of having bipolar disorder and the way we found that out was because I was eventually put on antidepressants yeah. quite reluctantly. And the thing of antidepressants is if you have bipolar, they actually cause manic episodes. Oh. So, yeah. <laughs> so I had quite a severe, probably my most severe up to that point manic episode and my doctor and my psychologist saw it. Yeah. And so that's how I ended up being diagnosed with bipolar. They sent me to a psychiatrist and got it confirmed. And... um. 
yeah, so that's kind of the chief diagnosis I live with to this day. And I'm also sort of getting treatment for my trauma history in the past as well. But yeah, bipolar is the main thing that kind of affects me in my daily life. Okay. Yeah. Do you find that the general public are open to discussion about mental illness or do you still experience stigma? I think the general public are getting better at talking about mental illness. But I think, unfortunately, that seems sort of restricted to depression and anxiety because Mm. there's so much work done by Beyond Blue and other organisations normalising depression and anxiety, saying it affects, you know, this many people, whatever. It's so normal. So it kind of isolates people with complex mental illnesses. Yeah, with anything other than those Yeah, so when I say complex mental illness, I mean like eating disorders, schizophrenia, bipolar, BPD, any sort of thing like that, yeah. OCD, you know, where we're sort of not part of the discussion about mental health sometimes. And I think that definitely comes across in the stigma I feel with mm. living with a few of those sort of diagnoses. So, um, for example, complex mental illnesses are often used as sort of insults. So, mm. like, and you would have heard, like, someone will say, oh, he's so bipolar. Yeah, or, it's kind of trivialised. It's trivialising. It's kind of saying, oh, she looks anorexic. Or, oh, you like colour coding. You're so OCD. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and people drop those, like, little phrases at the drop of All the, the time. And they don't realise how that, if you actually live with that diagnosis and you overhear that, how that feels. Yeah. It makes you realise, wow, people really don't take me seriously and don't and care. just don't understand. Don't understand. Yeah. And that's the thing. It chiefly comes down to not understanding. And that's why I do the sort of work that I do, trying to get out there saying hey you know we're out there too with all these other things yeah <laughs> you know, we exist and we struggle too and it'd be nice if you helped us out so mm. yeah so what are some examples of stigma that you face is it just like when you bring it up people kind of shy away from discussing it or yeah so a big example I have is when I was applying for a job last year yeah when um they they asked me and I'm not even sure if you're allowed to ask this but they asked in the interview and said uh, do you have any medical illnesses which yeah. you know about? And I said, well, yeah, I have bipolar disorder. And I just saw on their faces yeah. this sudden look of almost revulsion and just discomfort. Mm. And at the time I felt really bad. I was like, oh, that's horrible. But at the same time it was kind of a relief because if I don't want to work for someone who feels that way, yeah. because at the end of the day if I needed help from them, they obviously weren't going to give it to me. Yeah. But yeah, just subtle ways like that. And even when you you know, talk to people about you're out for dinner and you take your medication mm. and you see people look at you or, you know, I say to people, oh, I don't drink because of my medication. They're like, oh, what's your medication? And sort of things like that where people obviously get very uncomfortable and don't want to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you think causes that? Is it like it's lack of awareness that mental illness is a thing and that people experience it? Or? I think... I think it's difficult because like so many invisible illnesses, like I often think I often lump mental illnesses in with chronic physical illnesses, like fibromyalgia and stuff like that, because people can't see it. So to them, it's not real. Yeah. It's not valid. (laughs) It's not valid. And so it's really hard for people to put their themselves in the shoes of someone else experiencing something that, Mm. you know, like for example, if I was to explain what mania feels like, Mm you know, that's such an unreal experience to someone else Yeah, <laughs> that it's very hard for them to put themselves in my shoes. And I do understand that. I do I – don't, I think I'm more understanding than some other people in my position. I do yeah. kind of think, yeah, it is hard to kind of go that extra mile. But, yeah, it's a, it's a struggle because I think often we have our experiences invalidated and we're not listened to and we're not taken seriously mm. and we're just told to harden up and it's it's not it's not fair. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's very isolating. It's like oh, the, the last thing you want to hear, someone just yeah. kind of cut you down. Yeah, I've, and you, you often get these kind of at least statements. Like, oh, at least you're not in a wheelchair, yeah, or at least you're not this. it could be worse. It could be worse. And there's this great quote by Brene Brown, and I'm going to butcher it. Yeah. But she, <laughs> but she says, um, you know, that saying at least is kind of like the opposite of empathy. Yeah. Because you're not actually sitting there with the person in that moment, listening to them and sharing in that moment with them. You're just kind of saying, oh, get over it. Yeah. Like, it could be worse. <laughs> yeah. And when people say, like, it's, it's a first world problem, yeah. you have oh, so many not. things to be grateful for. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you you have no idea what goes on in my head every day. <laughs> yeah. So you're currently running a blog called The Extra Ounce. Yes. Where you post about concepts from sports sake and just psychology in general. Mm-hmm. One of your blog posts that I read discusses disclosing diagnosis. Mm-hmm. What has been your experience with disclosure? Disclosure for me has generally been quite a positive experience. I yeah. think for every negative experience I've had, there's probably been 10 positive oh brilliant yeah so and I don't know if that's because I just have good people in my life like I tend I tend to feel very fortunate I've spoken to other people in my spheres who have not had the same experience as me Um, I think that's also because of my philosophy around it and similar Mm. to what I was saying with that job before if someone reacts negatively to me disclosing I kind of respond sort of like well that says a lot about more about you than it does yeah. about me. And that you kind of dodged a bullet. Yeah, you know? yeah. Because I'd rather know that a person has a negative attitude about mental illness yeah. than wait until the moment I'm really in a crisis situation and call them mm. and then not respond well. So, you know, disclosure can kind of be a litmus test, I feel, to, sort mm. of <laughs> to test out where people are at and how you want that relationship to move forward. Yeah. I've been told by people that I talk about mental illness way too much. <laughs> I've been told this as well. <laughs> yeah, and it's kind of like, well, mental illness affects every second of every minute of my life. How do you yeah. expect me not to talk about it? Yeah. When something like getting up out of bed in the morning, what time I'm going to get up, is influenced by my mental illness because my psychiatrist says, as part of bipolar, it really helps you to get that first bit of sun. Yeah. Things like, yeah. <laughs> things like that. That affects what time I get up out so of bed in the morning. it's tied into everything It's tied into everything. So it's kind of like, it's tied into what I eat. It's tied into what people I see in my life. Mm. It's tied to what jobs I take. It's tied into everything. So it's kind of like, how can I not? talk about it so I think I'm a bit of an open book and it often makes people uncomfortable and I secretly love that I was gonna say <laughs> like, I find myself talking about it more and I I know I bring it up because I know people are going to be yeah. a bit uncomfortable and because I want to start this dialogue force the conversation yeah because <laughs> I mean often like I said that situation of me taking my meds at dinner if I notice someone looking at me weird I'm like oh sorry I need my happy pills yeah <laughs> like, and I'll make and I'll make comments like oh you know, now I'm out for the count because my meds make me tired. Yeah. So I'll say, oh, once these are gone, I'm done. And just making, having those subtle statements yeah. that you make people actually pay attention. Yeah. And, and they might actually ask a question, but go, oh, hmm. Mm. <laughs> See, I like shaking people up a yeah. bit. Because <laughs> I suppose some people just, if they've never been exposed to it, if no one in their family has experienced any kind mm. of mental health issues, or if their circle of friends just don't discuss it. I think it's important to highlight there that no one they know of. Yeah. Because often people have. Yeah. I remember I met a girl at uni who's like, oh, you're the first person I've met with bipolar. I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> like, I really doubt that. I'm just the first person who told you. Yeah. Like, you know, and that's in a psych degree. So that's someone who wants to mm. be a psychologist saying that. Yeah. You know, and that's quite remarkable. It's a, it's a big thing that grinds my gears is that, oh, reach out, reach out, reach out. And I'm all for that. I believe yeah. that wholeheartedly. But by the same time, meet us in the middle. 
Like, yeah. You know, <laughs> because there's no point in us reaching out if you're not going to then follow up. Yeah. Because if we reach out and say, yeah, I'm going through this really hard time and you never ask us about it again. Yeah. Or never fo- follow on that conversation say, hey, have you seen a psych or have you mm. gone to your GP? You know, it's just kind of like people need to meet us in the middle. We're often told to reach out, reach out, reach out, but people aren't told what to do when we reach out. Yeah. Does that make sense? To respond to it. Yeah. Yeah, and it can just be so hard to reach out in the first place. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you don't want to be a burden and you don't want to be well, misunderstood. And you don't want to be judged and you can feel like, you know, some people I've spoken to can feel like their problems are too small. Yeah. And other people feel like their problems are too big. They're like, yeah. no one's going to be able to help me. You know, so lots of reasons people don't seek help, you know, and I understand that. And I'm never going to criticize someone for that because it t- took me a very long time. Like I said, I lived with an eating disorder from 11 to 18. Yeah. And the first time I sought help was at 17, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, it's so a long I, time to be like struggling by yourself. Yeah, like exactly. That. So it's kind of like... You know, so I understand that, but I think, I guess what I would say to people is it's okay to feel that way. It's okay to struggle mm. with those thoughts about why seeking help is not an option for you. But I don't think it's okay to stay that way. I think you do need to kind of work to persevere and push through that because speaking from personal experience, if seeking help was the best thing I ever did. Yeah. It absolutely changed my life and, you know, it gets easier. Once yeah. you seek help once, it's like this load off your shoulders and, yeah. then, and then it eventually becomes normal, you know, that you just kind of go, I'm not feeling great. Hi. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, what do you do when you're surrounded by people who you assume don't want to have that conversation? Like, if you don't have friends that you can discuss it with, do you recommend going straight to the GP? Yeah, or... I generally would. My, my first piece of advice would be get new friends. <laughs> <laughs> but I know that's not always possible. Honestly, because I've, I've got rid of a lot yeah. of people in my life who haven't been there for me when they've needed to be. Mm. And I just kind of gone you're obviously not the right person who... Because like I said, mental illness affects everything in my life. So if you can't handle my mental illness, you can't handle it. Yeah, it's just not going to work. It's just not going (laughs) to work. So yeah, I'd say get new friends. But yeah, I think GPs are a great resource. I think even recently I had quite a significant kind of mental health crisis. Yeah. And I've seen my GP every week since then because I can't always afford to get all my expensive Mm. therapies. I've seen my GP all the time and they've been a really good resource. Really? Yeah, so even if you don't go... Not all GPs are made equal, but even if you don't go to a therapist, you can just the GP seeing them for a little bit to kind of warm you up. Yeah. (laughs) And then maybe think about therapy. It's... Because it is a big step. Like, I understand that's really challenging. So a GP can be a really nice place to start. And I sometimes do this trick. (laughs) I'll go in with, like, free things. So I'll be like, oh... You know that like thing where I injured my foot three years ago? It started hurting again. And like I've got like I can't sleep properly. Oh, and I'm like been feeling suicidal. <laughs> you know, Help. And, and it can just kind of make it a bit easier to kind of you have one little that sounds really bad, but you, you have one little thing you say to them and yeah. you kind of check if they're a nice responsive person. Oh, and that's then a good you, idea. Yeah, and then you know, it can ease the gap if you feel more confident and comfortable talking yeah. to them. And then you say something else. So even if you just say, you know, oh, I've got a bit of a cold. Yeah. <laughs> and side note. <laughs> and side note, like clinical depression. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it was even just having that person to talk to. And yeah. It doesn't have to, and it doesn't have to be professional. Like I've benefited a lot from professional treatment. Don't yeah. get me wrong. Absolutely changed my life having the right psychologist, the yeah. right psychiatrist. But, you know, depending on the seriousness of the diagnosis, you know, uh, <sighs> Yeah, I don't want to give away crappy advice. Basically, 
in something like bipolar, you need medication. Yeah. In my opinion, that's non-negotiable. Yeah. But a lot of mental illnesses are like that. You know, if you can try and manage just in your kind of smaller relationships just by having the conversations sometimes, you know, because treatment's expensive and not everyone can afford it. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I've got a really cool psychiatrist who bulk bills me and has done the entire time I've seen him. Really? I don't think a lot of them do that, but yeah. he does that for me. See, that would be a major obstacle for a lot of people. Yeah, it is. It is, absolutely. And... I do know a lot of universities have – I know my university, Swinburne, have – you can go to the clinic and get seen by trainee psychologists, mm. so people who are doing their master's, and that's either free or quite reduced. Yeah. What's your opinion on the importance of self-care? I think self-care is hugely important, whether you're someone living with a mental illness, yeah. caring for someone with a mental illness, care about someone with a mental illness – or just living your life without yeah. a mental illness. I think self-care is hugely important. But I think there's kind of a misconception about what self-care is. Okay. I think... It's not all bubble baths and it's not, face it's not, masks. <laughs> that's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> Hashtag self-care Sunday. It's, it's not all that. Like, for me, it's quite, you know, it's going to be a bit embarrassing to admit, but for me, self-care can be making my bed. Yeah. Self-care can be brushing my teeth. Yeah. Because when you live with a, you know, a, you struggle with a complex mental illness... Those things can be so hard. So yeah. the fact that you even accomplish that small task for the day makes you feel better about yourself. Yeah. It can be as simple as like I like to try and write at least I write poetry, so I mm-hmm. try and write at least one poem or haiku a day. Mm-hmm. I try to read books or like at least read a couple pages of a book, you know, see a friend, things like that. Get outside, yeah. get in the sun. Um, really small things like that can be part of yeah. self-care. The, the biggest things I do in terms of self-care – uh, taking my medication. Yeah. Uh, I have a, a mood app, so it's called eMoods. It's like where I track my moods and enter little, I feel free quarters depressed today. Yeah. Um, and then the third thing I make sure I do is I keep a gratitude journal. So mm, I've been meaning to do that. It's really good. It's really good for those days where you you think the entire day is just a throwaway. It's been mm. horrible. And then you find something like, oh, I saw a cute dog on the tram. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it makes that day have a bit more meaning for you. Yeah. I find it exceptionally valuable keeping gratitude journal. I recommend it to everyone. Okay. Um, yeah, self-care can be anything. It can be any of those sorts of things I listed or it can be anything for the individual that they enjoy. So sitting back and watching a movie at the end of the day in yeah. pyjamas. Anything like that just helps you kind of restore and feel good about yourself. Yeah. Yeah. How I see it, it's, it's not just doing things that you enjoy, but it's doing things that you know are good for you and you don't yeah. necessarily want to do, like taking a shower or making sure you drink enough water it's almost a mindful thing like you have to be kind of like what can i do today that's going to help my mental health yeah and you it's kind of yeah being present in that as well yeah Yeah. and just having like a lot of intention yeah intentions i think the biggest thing that defines self-care from just having a good day yeah yeah for sure Uh, we talked a bit about this before about your experience in seeking help yeah so what exactly was your experience both initially and then continuing to seek help? Was it quite a like fluid, easy process? <laughs> <laughs> I would say it is now. Yeah. My first time seeking help was one of the hor- most horrendous experiences of my really? life. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to go into too much yeah. detail, but really tried to kind of go it on my own and treat myself, which yeah. was not a good idea. But I did a kind of – it worked for a little bit, like blunt – brute force I'm just gonna start eating again yeah. I'm gonna make all my friends and family make me eat yeah and it was really traumatic and awful um and it took me about another 18 months before I started seeking help again and then from there I didn't look back so I saw a different GP saw a different psychologist and it was just amazing 
Mm. They changed my life. And um, from there I sort of was able to start. I think seeking help is one of those things that if you have a bad experience, it can really, you know, scar you yeah, and make you less likely to seek help again. But then when you have a good experience... It, it makes, makes you, you more like... Yeah, yeah, exactly. It makes you more likely to do it again. So that's kind of what my experience has been now, that seeking help professionally, I've had such a positive experience mm. that it's a lot easier for me now. So in, you know, situations where I may sort of regress, I can just say to my partner, I'm feeling this, and they'll say, you should go talk to Emily, who's my psychologist. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I'll be like, yes, that's a good idea. Yeah. That's very simple and kind of flows... A lot, yeah. but in the past, yeah, that first experience was really quite scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I reckon a lot of people go through that. Like now that you mention it, it's exactly what I went through. Yeah, at a similar age as well. Yeah, like immediately, like going into the GP and having them just say like, "Oh, it's not that bad," or <laughs> things like that. And you're yeah. like, "Well, I'm not going to speak to anyone about this ever again." Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. and especially when you're a young person, you look to adults for support yeah. and guidance and you think and I think you think back on all those times when you were a kid and the GP helped you when you were sick yeah and you think it's going to be the same and yeah it, you kind of go there like with your heart on your sleeve yeah. And then, yeah you mentally prepare yourself to kind of do your song and dance yeah and <laughs> you think of mental health it's trial and error mm. you've got to find the right people and once Just stick you it out. stick it out and once you find the right people it's so much easier because yeah. they are out there. They are out there. There's some amazing therapists and you know and GPs yeah. and <laughs> psychiatrists around, and just mental health workers, social workers. There's a lot of great support yeah. around. Um, it's just not always easy to find. Yeah, you do have to dig, and that's unfortunate. But yeah. Mm, well, yeah, going into some common reasons that people often delay seeking help, I suppose that's also a factor. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I think. A big one I've come across in talking to people is feeling like a burden. Mm. And I think that's something I felt very much as a young person. Yeah. Um, I didn't want to burden my loved ones with my issues. Yeah, you didn't want to weigh them down. No, and I think that's a big thing that prevents a lot of people from seeking help, but not just professionally, but, like, obviously in the... Because seeing a professional can help kind of relieve that because you think... It's their job. I can job. tell it's their job. Yeah. But talking to your loved ones, that can be really, really challenging because you think... And also, if you get if you get rejected by a GP, that sucks. You get rejected by your mum or dad yeah. or brother or sister, best friend, lover. It's, you yeah. know, that hurts. You know, a GP, you can kind of be like, well, screw him anyway. Yeah. But someone in your family, that can be really crushing. Yeah. You know. And they can do that without any... Like bad intent. It's just oh, yeah. they don't. They might don't not know. know how to respond or. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and they can just kind of say those things that anyone with a mental illness will know is not the right thing to yeah. say. Of kind of like, you know, oh, you'll be right, and you know, it's not oh, that bad, yeah. and it's you know, um, you just need to be strong, and mm. those sorts of things that people f- say with all the best intentions that can end up being very dismissive. Yeah, yeah. exactly, and really invalidating. Yeah, that's one thing that I really don't like when when I'm feeling sad or or something like that and I share it with my family or friends. Mm. I really don't like it when it's just like they're only trying to make me feel better by saying like oh, I'll be all right, just you know, think about something else. But really like you need that time. You need to feel sad. Yeah. 
It's about, there's nothing wrong with that. Like, it's a necessity. No. Yeah. Like, I think people are taught that being happy is the be-all and all. Yeah. And I think if there's one thing that having bipolar has taught me is that you need the ups and downs yeah. in life. And I feel I've learned a lot from those ups and downs. And people are so uncomfortable with sitting in mm. those downs and just kind of sitting with you and saying, yeah, this sucks. People but, but are, feel it, yeah. People struggle with that so much, but it helps us so much more yeah. than these kind of platitudes of you'll be right, you yeah. know, it's going to get better. Because it does get better. What they're saying is true. Yeah. <laughs> but it doesn't help to hear that at the time. Yeah. yeah. Can you discuss your opinion on social media <laughs> and the effect it has on mental health? So social media is a really double-edged sword. Yeah, it's a funny one. <laughs> a funny one. Um, I can honestly say that I've had extremely negative experiences on yeah. social media and extremely positive. Okay. So, in terms of my eating disorder, are you familiar with pro-ana? Yeah. Yeah, so pro-anorexia social media, which is where I spent a lot of my time as a teenager. Mm. And I think with social media, you can kind of self-socialise. You kind of say, I'm thinking these things in my head and I want to go get them confirmed by the rest of the world. Yeah. (laughs) Which can be really counterproductive because people are hearing these negative thoughts in their head and they see other people say them so they think they're normal. Yeah. For me, that was a big thing that, like, I'm not mentally ill. Everyone else is yeah. thinking it because I found all these people online who were also mentally ill. It's, yeah, for those who don't know, like, pro-ana is just part of the internet where, you know, people with eating disorders or people who are sort of developing eating disorders get together and give away tips, mm. tricks, quote-unquote inspirational quotes. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of, it's a pretty disgusting place on the internet and I spend a lot of time on that and I approach social media so differently now because of that experience. Yeah. So I self-socialise in a different way where I kind of only follow accounts that make me feel good and mm. valid. I developed a in- Instagram attached to my blog called The Extra Ounce where I post about stuff every day. Mm. And through doing that, just finding this kind of online community of people who are so supportive and so encouraging, mm. it's been really quite reinvigorating for me. And sometimes in terms of self-care, given me a place where I feel you know, I can spend some time on here and feel Yeah, instead of the absolute opposite. Yeah, so it's been quite lovely. But I think in general, the tricky thing with social media is that everyone's posting their highlights reel. And that's something I try to avoid doing on my extra ounce account. Yeah, like the highly edited filters. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. and like look at me like in the sunshine, in my bikini (laughs) and all that. Like that's not what your life actually is. That's what your life is like for one day every month. Yeah, one small snippet. (laughs) Yeah. So I think it's really easy when you're on social media to kind of compare yourself Mm. to other people. And it's that's why I recommend a social media cleanse Mm. to everyone. Do it once a year, once every six months. Just go through and unfollow anyone who makes you feel bad about yourself. Yeah. Because it really helps your mental health to just kind of rid yourself of those people. They're not bad people, but if they make you feel bad about yourself, it's not worth keeping them around. And people can not realise that, it's making them feel bad as well. Yeah. They can just be scrolling and, yeah, like, unaware. And it's passively just feeling a bit sad looking yeah. at beautiful people. Yeah. Yeah, you have to act with intention in these kind of realms. Yeah, and one of the things that I just thought of that I keep pretty involved in in my social media is body yeah. diversity. Okay. So I like to keep, particularly women, but men and women, of all different body shapes on my feed 
because in the past I used to only look at one body shape. Yeah. And now I look at beautiful people of all different body shapes and that makes me feel better about myself because mm. look at me, I, I'm just one of many different body shapes. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's something that I recommend to people as well, to yeah. kind of follow diverse range of body shapes as well. So it plants like positive seeds in your mind. Yeah, exactly. It's all about just rearranging your brain to think differently. It's, it's constant work, it really is. Well, do you have any good accounts that you follow off the top of your head off the top of my head um i love ruby allegra mm. and they're a person living with disability mm. and they post a lot of really awesome activism surrounding that i also love one of my friends kind full body and mind um they're a really amazing body positive person yeah um uh, there are two that come to my head immediately if i know the names <laughs> i don't want to bitcher anyone else's name but yeah <laughs> yeah so as someone who's not only lived through mental health issues, but also someone who studied psychology and advocated for mental health. Mm -hmm. What final advice can you give to someone who may be struggling with their mental health? The biggest advice I give to people is that, and something I heard once, it was advice I was given once, is that no feeling is final. And that's something that's really been important for me in recognising in my bipolar, is that things can feel so permanent and like they're the end of the world at that time. Mm. And then eventually they're not. <laughs> and like, I'll give a couple of examples. Like with my sort of trauma side of things, I can think that there will never be a day where I don't feel this way. Yeah. And that I will never be able to do these things about getting flashbacks. I don't feel that way anymore. Nothing is like no feeling is final. Mm. You know, with my eating disorder, I could think some of the horrible things I used to say to myself mm. in my head. I don't feel that way anymore. Yeah. No feeling is final. And in terms of my bipolar, like I can fluctuate in all sorts of ways. But in terms of my depression side of things, I can be thinking the world is pointless. No one cares if I'm here or not. I wish this bed would just swallow me up. Yeah. Right now, I don't feel that. Yeah. No feeling is final. But every single time I felt those emotions, they felt like they were the only thing I was ever going to feel. Yeah. So it's this kind of thing where you just got to survive each moment. You go, here's this moment, survive this second, then repeat. Yeah. This moment, survive, repeat, survive, repeat. Brilliant advice. (laughs) Thank you for coming in today, Jess. That's all right. Thank you for having me. So as always, remember that you can reach out to Beyond Blue on 1300 224636 if you're needing someone to listen or provide information and advice as well as Lifeline on 13 11 14. Join us next Wednesday at 5pm for another episode of Brainwaves on 3CR 855 AM. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.